Krishna and all of Vrindavan is present in this bhajan. Uh, Radha is there, Krishna is there, <laughs> the gopis are there, um, <clears throat> Vrindavan with Govardhan Hill and the Yamuna, everything is there. And so when we sing it, we invoke the Lord and his residents and his associates. And in that mood, it sets a very nice mood for hearing about Krishna. So uh, because of the Zoom uh, limitations, I'm just going to sing it once through. Um, Jaya Radhama Hava Gopi <laughs> Uh, so, um, and now generally we <coughs> would say Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya um, three times. Usually we say things three times. It says when you want to emphasize something. When something is important, you, you don't say it just once, you say it three times, and people know that it's very important. And what it means is, oh, my Lord Krishna, the son of Vasudev, oh, all-pervading supreme personality of Godhead, I offer my obeisances unto you. And why do we say this before we read? It's because we want to read in a mood of surrender. We are surrendering to Krishna. And in surrendering to Krishna, Krishna will reveal himself to us. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells Arjuna that he's telling him all of this, he's sharing all of this with him because he's non-envious. So on our own power, we cannot understand anything. We can only understand it if Krishna reveals it to us. And so in the beginning, before we read, we surrender and so that Krishna can reveal himself to us. So again, you can say it with me, but I'm just going to say it three times straight. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So today I am <clears throat> going to uh, read a verse from the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 7, text 16. Chatur Vidhabajante Mam Jana Sukriti Narjana Arto Jignasur Artarti Shaba. Translation O best among the Bharatas, four kinds of pious men began to render devotional service unto me the distressed, the desire of wealth, the inquisitive and he who is searching for knowledge of the absolute purport by his divine grace, Srila Prabhupada. Unlike the miscreants, these are adherents of the regulative principles of scripture, and they are called sukritanaha, or those who obey the rules 
and regulations of scriptures, the moral and social laws, and are more or less devoted to the Supreme Lord. Out of these, there are four classes of men, those who are sometimes distressed, those who are in need of money, those who are sometimes inquisitive, and those who are sometimes searching after knowledge of the absolute truth. These persons come to the Supreme Lord for devotional service under different conditions. These are not pure devotees because they have some aspiration to fulfill in exchange for devotional service. Pure devotional service is without aspiration and without desire for material profit. The Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu 1111 defines pure devotion thus. One should render transcendental loving service to the Supreme Lord Krishna favorably and without desire for material profit or gain through fruitive activities or philosophical speculation. That is called pure devotional service. When these four kinds of persons come to the Supreme Lord for devotional service and are completely purified by the association of a pure devotee, they also become pure devotees. As far as the miscreants are concerned, for them, devotional service is very difficult because their lives are selfish, irregular, and without spiritual goals. But even some of them, by chance, when they come in contact with a pure devotee, also become pure devotees. Those who are always busy with fruitive activities come to the Lord in material distress, and at that time associate with the pure devotees and become, in their distress, devotees of the Lord. Those who are simply frustrated also come sometimes to, the, to associate with pure devotees and become inquisitive to know about God. Similarly, when the dry philosophers are frustrated in every field of knowledge, they sometimes want to learn of God and they come to the Supreme Lord to render devotional service and thus transcend knowledge of the impersonal Brahman and the localized Paramatma and come to the personal conception of Godhead by the grace of the Supreme Lord or his pure devotee. On the whole, when the distressed, the inquisitive, the seekers of knowledge, and those who are in need of money are free from all material desires, and when they fully understand that material remuneration has nothing to do with spiritual improvement, they become pure devotees. As long as such a purified stage is not attained, Devotees in transcendental service of the Lord are tainted with fruitive activities, the search for mundane knowledge, etc. So one has to transcend all this before one can come to the stage of pure devotional service. So I'm just going to start uh, by offering my obeisances to the spiritual master. There's generally a lot of prayers, but because of time, I'm just going to say the first one to the spiritual master. Om Ajnanatmanandascha Gidanjana Salakaya Shakshulunamitam Yena Asmai Shri Gurave Namaha I was born in the darkest ignorance and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances unto him. So Hare Krishna. So uh, when I was asked to speak, I was told that I could choose any topic that I wanted. <clears throat> and I think that uh, the person thought, well, that should make it easy. <laughs> but, 
But in fact, because there are so many wonderful things to talk about Krishna, it made it a little difficult. Uh, so what I decided was that I would talk about my favorite question to ask devotees when I meet them, which is how they came to the Krishna consciousness. But because this is not such an interactive uh, meeting, I decided that I could read that verse. And that verse talks about how and why people come to Krishna consciousness. Um, I'm always impressed by devotees that have to completely change their lifestyles. Sometimes they give up their families or their homes or their jobs. And sometimes they even have to move from a different state or a different country. And they do those things in order to <clears throat> reestablish their relationship for Krishna, with Krishna. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be born, not born, but raised in a family of devotees. My parents joined when I was five. Uh, so I didn't have to sacrifice so much when I decided for myself that, yes, I want to be a devotee of Krishna. Um, so I'm always impressed and inspired by those that do have to change their lifestyle. And um, I just wanted to say that Krishna also is impressed by these things. Um, uh, so we know from this verse the general reasons why Krishna, I mean, why people come to Krishna consciousness. My uh, thing that I want to elaborate on a little bit more is what do you get when you decide to surrender to Krishna? What's your prize? A lot of times <clears throat> we are motivated by the prize. <laughs> um, so if when we were reading in the purport, the final goal is um, that you become a pure devotee and you get to practice uh, pure devotional service. Um, but that seems like a process. And what does it mean in practice? Uh, certainly, I still have material desires <clears throat> and I'm not practicing pure devotional service. Um, and to become free from all material desires, it can seem like quite um, a, da a daunting task. So what is our fate along the way um, between become, coming to Krishna because of the four reasons that were mentioned and then having no material desires? <clears throat> what do we get? Uh, so primarily, the Lord often rewards us with what we asked for. In the fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Ye yatam mam papadyante tams tataiva bhajam yaham. As all surrender to me, I reward them accordingly. So Krishna is always like a desire tree, and he is always blessing us. <clears throat> sometimes we are aware of it, and sometimes we aren't. Um, so, you know, all those things that you come and you have material desires to be fulfilled, Krishna often will fulfill them for you. But that's only the tip of the iceberg of what's available uh, when we attempt to reclaim our birthright or more aptly put our right of existence because it's not dependent on our birth. We have this <clears throat> constitutional 
position that we are part and parcel of Krishna and we are his eternal servants. And so we're just trying to reclaim what we've forgotten. And when we do that, what is available to us is the sweetest nectar. But we have to look for it. We have to be nectar seekers. Um, Because on the face of it, it may seem very cut and dried. We have to surrender and listen and see what nectar is there? What sweetness is there? So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the sweetness that is available to us when we decide, yes, Krishna, we'd like to surrender to you. So, and I wanted to approach it from the perspective of so many things that don't quite seem like nectar, don't quite seem so sweet. We are in this material world. We are going through so many trials and tribulations, so much hardship. It would be nice if we could just go into our Krishna bubble and find some sweetness, find this little bit of respite from all the troubles that the material world attacks us with. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was the laws of karma. Uh, When we think about karma, we don't necessarily think about sweetness. it's more like you reap what you sow, you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Um, <clears throat> it's a, it can be a bitter pill, actually, if you think, you know, and it happens a lot with devotees, you know, like you're, you're suffering and they're like, oh, well, that's some heavy karma you're suffering through right there. Or, you know, <clears throat> you know, you're working off some heavy karma, which a lot of times <laughs> when you're suffering, it's not soothing to think, well, you know, you, you're getting what you deserve. <laughs> no one wants to think that I deserve these horrible things. It's much easier to be a victim. But even if you accept it, it's not really soothing. You don't feel soothed by this information, even though it may be true. Um, <clears throat> the sweetness comes in when <clears throat> we think about we realize that the Lord set up these, these laws of material nature and these laws of karma as a way to remind us that we don't belong here. Uh, and he does it because he wants us to come back. So you have good karma and good karma might put you in a wonderful position. You might have money, you might have intelligence, you have these things. And sometimes those things make it easier for you to reconnect with Krishna. But then sometimes they just further entangle you. But the truth of the matter is, even those things are temporary. And if you've ever seen someone who had a lot of money and they lose it, it seems like they suffer worse than if they were just, they never had it to begin with. And so certainly if after you realize that this is temporary, you can become frustrated and try to ask what there has to be something else. You know, what is the point? Likewise with bad karma, you're often so frustrated that you end up looking for something other than this distressful material condition. And so 
the Lord has set it up so that eventually we will try to look and figure out, is there something better? Now, there's some proof of this. This is just not my mental, mental speculation. <clears throat> uh, there's a story from the Biha Bhagavatam Rita, which is like the essence of the Srimad Bhagavatam. And there's a story about a devotee, Gopakumara. And he, um, when he meets again with Krishna in the spiritual world, Krishna tells him, he says, my dear friend, you have passed many lifetimes without paying any attention to me at all. So I remember reading this and thinking, oh, wow, that's really heavy. You know, the Lord is saying, I've been here and you're not even paying any attention to me. How would we feel if we're sitting there and our friend totally ignores us the whole time? We would be, we might be angry, but that anger would really just be covering our sadness that we don't feel like we're worth them paying us any attention. They don't value our company. And then the Lord says, for so long, hope had me dancing like a fool, thinking perhaps in this lifetime, or in this, or in this, or in this lifetime, he will finally turn his face towards me. Now, Wow, the Lord, just because of hope, not because we actually turned his face, just the hope of us turning our face to him has him dancing like a fool. How sweet is that, that our Lord, just from the hope of us looking in his direction, makes him dance. He says, but I could find no pretext on which to bring you back to my abode, dear brother, and still follow the timeless laws that I myself created. Today, you have at last fulfilled the desire I have harbored for so long. Please nourish your happiness and mine by staying here forever. So in there, the Lord talks about how he could find no pretext on which to bring you back to his abode. And it's because he set up these laws of material nature. And you're like, but the Lord can do anything. Why wouldn't he do it? Well, <clears throat> we, the Lord has given us free will. And it's because of that free will. And we decided, I want to try to be the enjoyer. I want to be the controller. And so the Lord, in his infinite kindness, made a place for us to do that. But he made it so that we would eventually be frustrated with it because he misses us. He wants us back with him. But out of kindness, he gave us whatever we wanted. If you want to go and, and try to become an enjoyer, here, here's a place to do that. I'm going to miss you so much that I'll go along with you. I will be that paramatma. I'll sit there next to you and just wait and hope that you will change your mind, that you will call out to me. And then <clears throat> he puts a little bit of things, like I have to obey my own laws, but I can try to bend the rules a little bit. 
So he talks about how does he bend the rules? He says, so, you know, I'm just waiting for you to call out to me, to call out my name. And so then he says, even if you call out the Lord's name unintentionally, unintentionally or in jest, or even a shadow of his name. What's a shadow of his name? A shadow of his name is like Ajamil. When Ajamil was calling for his son, Narayan, but his son's name is Narayan, which is the Lord's name, he was saved. This is the shadow of a name. He said he will use it as an excuse to show us his mercy and he'll put us on a path to deliverance. He set up a place where we'd always be wondering, hmm, what's missing? Where our real spiritual identities will never be satisfied with this material experience. And we'll eventually search him out. So he gave us what he wants, but he also set it up that we'd eventually come back to what is what we both really love the most, what we both really enjoy the most, and what is best for us. So the stories of how devotees come to Krishna consciousness are also stories about how Krishna has made arrangements to bring us back to him. It's sort of reciprocal. We come for these reasons. So it's from our point of view, what brought us to Krishna. And then when we think about it, it's what Krishna has done to guide us with his sweet lotus hand. That's the source of all his mercy as he guides us back to him. So those stories of how we came to Krishna consciousness, when we think about them, are so very sweet. And so <clears throat> there's another way when we could think of the Lord's, <coughs> excuse me, sweetness. And that sweetness we can think of in the Lord's leelas. Uh, when we read, we are reading about the Lord's pastimes. And that is how the Lord communicates with us. And in, through this communication, there's so much sweetness. In the Bhagavad Gita, the Lord says he comes to deliver the pious, annihilate the miscreants, and to reestablish the principles of religion. But there's also another reason. In the Srimad Bhagavatam, Srila Prabhupada states that the conditioned souls that aren't conversant with the activities of the Lord are sometimes favored by him because in his adventures as incarnations, he displays his eternal bliss of his association and how it is when we get back to the transcendental realm. And by this, he attracts us with his activities. So here's another thing that he does to draw us, draw our attention so that we can call out his name and then he can give us his mercy. So how sweet is this? But you have to search for the sweetness. It's there. Sometimes if you just read it, it seems very ordinary. But if you're looking and you're surrendered, Krishna will reveal his sweetness to you. And in revealing that sweetness, it will make it easier to traverse and transcend this material existence. So I wanted to just talk about a, a pastime or two. I don't think I really have time for more than one to <clears throat> talk about the Lord's sweetness in the pastime. 
And the first pastime I wanted to speak to is the story of Prahlad and Lord Nisringadev. Uh, I, I do recognize that <clears throat> there are some new people here, so I'll give a little synopsis um, just so that everybody can get the most out of it. Um, but in the story of Lord Nisringadev, you're not, that's not generally thought of as a story of sweetness. You know, there's a lot of there's some blood and guts and killing and <clears throat> parents are killed. And, but there's also sweetness. So <clears throat> the story starts with a demon, Ranyakashipu, who has, he's gone through so many austerities to become very powerful. And he has made <clears throat> uh, Lord Brahma, the creator of this material world, give him these boons, which made him feel like he was immortal and, and invincible. And then once he had those boons, he went and he terrorized everyone. He terrorized the demigods and the heavenly planets, and he terrorized the, <coughs> the devotees of Lord Vishnu and all those in the earthly planets and the lower planetary system. And he was lording it over and ruling everyone and in everyone who was afraid of him. And so then he has a son and his son had the good fortune of while he was in his mother's womb, having association of a great devotee, Narada Muni. And Narada Muni spoke to him while he was in the womb and told him all about Krishna and his wonderful activities. So when Prahlad was born, he was a devotee. And all he would do was remember Krishna in all his activities. And so when he would go to school, he would talk about Krishna. When he was at home, he would talk about Krishna. And uh, when his father asked him, you know, what have you learned? What's the best thing you learned? He would tell them, the school doesn't teach me anything but material things, but Krishna, surrendering to Lord Vishnu is the most important thing and what we should always do. And Aranyakashipu was enraged because this is his enemy. Lord Vishnu is the killer of his brother. And so he hates Lord Vishnu, he hates the devotees of Lord Vishnu, and he can't believe that his own son is now a devotee of Lord Vishnu when he's still there. He's considering himself God, but now my son is worshiping Lord Vishnu. And so he gets very angry, and he first sends them back to school, and he tells them, you know what, teachers, you have to do better. Teach him our values, our demon values. But when Krishna goes, I mean, when Prahlad goes there, he only talks to his friends, his demon friends, about Krishna, about the Lord. And he has them chant and dance. And the teachers are at their wit's end. They don't know what to do. They're also afraid of Hiranyakashipu. And when Hiranyakashipu comes and he asks his son, okay, now what have you learned? I remember as a young person hearing this story. <clears throat> and, you know, when... when I joined him, I was around five or six years old, which is around the same age as Prahlad Maharaj. I remember thinking, why doesn't he just tell him what he wants to hear? He's gonna get so mad, you're gonna be in trouble. 
the faith that Prahlad had in the Lord, it, he didn't even think, he, I'm going to tell you what's best for you. So he tells him. And Hiranyakashipu is so angry that he concocts many ways of killing his son. So, you know, there's no sweetness there when the father wants to kill the child. So he, he makes up so many ways. He has demons try to eat him. He throws him off of the mountain. He puts him in a pit of snakes. He puts him in a hurricane. He tries to poison him. He does all of these horrible things to try to kill his son. And meanwhile, his son just remembers Krishna and just prays to Krishna like he did in all of his other times and all of his other activities. And because he did, the Lord saved him every single time. And so then finally, Haranyakashipu is so enraged. And he's like, where are you getting these powers from? He's thinking, you must have some mystic power that I cannot kill you. Where are you getting the powers from? And Prahlad says, I'm getting my powers from the same place you're getting your powers. I'm getting my powers from God. And he's like, what is this nonsense? Where is your God? Is he in this pillar? And Prahlad says, yes, he's everywhere. He's in this pillar. And so then he says, well, then I will kill him and then I'll kill you. And when he goes to kill the Lord in the pillar, the Lord jumps out. And it says the Lord was in the pillar because Prahlad had faith he was in the pillar, and so he would not make his devotees a liar. So he jumps out of the pillar, and <clears throat> he takes Hiranyakashipu, and it's neither day nor night. It's neither inside or outside because he was in the doorway. He's neither on the land or in the air because he puts him on his lap, and he kills him with his, he takes his nails, which are not a weapon because he didn't want to be killed with any weapon. And he takes him and he digs into his stomach and rips him apart. And he digs out his intestines and he wraps it around him like a garland. Now that's certainly not sweet. <laughs> so he does all of these things and all of those ways where he came and he's neither a man nor a beast, all these things he did to make sure that Lord Brahma, who had given those boons, wasn't alive. So he, the Lord comes and he does all of this to serve his devotees. But then he's super, super angry. And Lakshmi is there, and Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva, they're all there. And they're all afraid to go and speak to the Lord because the Lord is so very angry. And so they decide to send Prahlad Maharaj, the Prahlad, little Prahlad. And he goes, he walks up without any fear because he knows this is my dear Lord that I think of all of the time. And he walks right up. And when he walks up, Lord Nishringadev places his hand on Prahlad's head. He's so happy that his dear devotee is here. And even though he's angry, he has no fear. And so he puts his hand on his head. Now that's the sweetness. 
Then later, he, <clears throat> he puts Prahlad Maharaj on his lap and <clears throat> he sits him there and out of parental affection, because it's so nice, he's on his lap, he licks him like a lion licks its cubs. And that's the sweetness, the way that he's so happy with Prahlad that he's, he's just like his own child. And he came and he had no fear. He was, had so much faith that he endeared himself to Lord Nishmadu. And <clears throat> later on, it says uh, in the Briha Bhagavatam Rita, again, uh, they, when they talk about uh, Prahlad Maharaj, he says, um, he calls Prahlad the most dear of his devotees. And he says, without these types of dear devotees, um, I'm not even attracted to myself or to even Lakshmi Devi, uh, my eternal consort. And why would the Lord say this? Prahlad is here, but himself or his eternal consort, Lakshmi Devi, without devotees like Prahlad, I'm not even attracted to them. It says the reason why the Supreme, Supreme Lord speaks like this is that although his eternal associates like Sankarshan and Mahalakshmi and so on, they are ever established in unswerving devotion. They have unswerving devotion. They didn't go undergo any tribulations to gain it. Whereas his new devotees, in the material world have sacrificed all comforts and security to gain pure devotional service. And for such trouble that the devotees have taken, Lord Krishna is especially grateful. And it says, besides, the Lord wants to encourage all his devotees to surrender themselves more fully. And to accomplish this, he emphatically praises devotees like Prahlad, who has taken such great risk simply for his satisfaction. So <clears throat> the Lord has hope that has him dancing like a fool. And then he gives us those new devotees hope because he says all the things, the trials and tribulations that you will have to sacrifice in this material world to gain pure devotional service will make you more dear to him than his eternal associates. And so what hope does that give us? That gives us hope that should have us dancing like a fool because Krishna is so sweet that he really is grateful for everything that we do to surrender to him and try to practice this devotional service. So it comes full circle to what I was saying before about the mercy of the Lord, the sweetness of the Lord. And then the Lord reciprocates. So if you are looking, when you're reading these stories and you're thinking, oh, somehow it's a very nice pastime, but if you look for the sweetness, Krishna will reciprocate and show you that sweetness. And that sweetness is always available to us because our relationship with Krishna is eternal. He has not forgotten 
So turn your face just a little bit. Try to find the sweetness. Be a nectar seeker and see how the Lord will reciprocate with you. See the merciful hand of the Lord in your life. Think about how that merciful hand of the Lord has roped you in and brought you back into his, into his association and the association of fellow devotees who are also trying to get back into that pure devotional service. So how hard is it to be free from material desires? How hard is it to have pure devotional service? It's very hard, but Krishna will be grateful for everything you do to get it. And he will send help. He will send like-minded devotees to help. He will send his pastimes to help. He will send his holy name to help. And although some of these things may need other people to do, his holy name, which even if chanted unintentionally or in jest, even if you say those things, he is 100% present. And it is purifying. And soon you will be chanting it intentionally and seriously and with love and with affection and with sweetness. And then you will be in your Krishna bubble and have a respite from the trials and the tribulations of the material world. And you'll be able to tolerate them without being disturbed because you understand that they're gonna come and they're gonna go. But if I can stay focused in Krishna, my happiness is eternal. And that's some of the sweetness. And that sweetness is available to all of us. So um, they were saying that I should stop around 8.45 for questions. So it's like 8.42. Um, and so, does anyone have any questions? I have a question. Okay. Okay. So we hear that um, Prahlad Maharaj didn't tell his father what he wanted to hear um, or, like, or try to prevent his anger because he had so much faith in Krishna. And you said he wanted, he wanted his father to hear the truth. But then we also hear that we shouldn't speak things that disturb the minds of others. So how to see this apparent contradiction? Um, it, it's very difficult. You have to sometimes feel out the situation. If you are preaching to someone <clears throat> who is not closely related to you or there is no real connection, sometimes you can preach in a way where you don't say the things to disturb the person's mind and they can continue to chant and purify themselves so they get to a point where they can accept those things. But it's just like if you have a family and you have someone close to you, there are certain things that I wouldn't tell someone else. I try to let them figure it out for themselves. But for my family, 
for people I care about, for people who I don't want to see suffer, I sometimes am a little bit more direct and a little bit more harsh because the pain that it causes me to see them going down a road that's going to cause them so much suffering is painful to me. And so then you say sometimes those unpalatable things because you care more and you are afraid that if you do not, the suffering will be there. At the end, the Lord asked Balad if he wanted something. And Balad said, I don't want to be a, a merchant. I'm not bartering. I don't want anything. And he says, no, no, please ask something. And so then what did Prahlad ask? He asked that my, my father be delivered because he cared so much. That's why he was saying those things to his father for his own best interest. And at the end, even after he was killed, he still had his father's best interest at heart. So there's a, a, a way that you accept things from different people. If from sometimes if your family says something, even if you don't like it, you might be mad, but you don't disown them. But if some stranger tells you something that you don't like and they're harsh, you try to stay away from them. You cut off any contact. And if you cut off contact, then they're not able then to continue to preach, continue to slowly bring you around. So you have to understand the relationships between the people who you're preaching to. And then understanding the relationships, whether you'll be able to continue to preach and continue to help them or not, then you can make a decision on whether you want to preach in a way that may or may not disturb their mood. Does that answer your question? Perfectly, thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions? I have a question. Haribo. So the story of Pallad is uh, quite amazing and uh, wonderful. And we may be wondering how exactly it relates to us. I mean, what is our position? And um, like, for example, I think about the ease with which parents will send their children to war at the risk of dying. And I think it's kind of like um, Hiranyakashipu's hostility to his son, but it's not, it's not the same. You know, the people are so deluded, they think we have to do this. It's a good thing that our son is going to some war when it's not a good thing. How would you see how we fit in the story, uh, you know, as um, a participant or, or, or a part of that story, just for the sake of um, making it real and immediate for people who are listening? I don't know if that question is clear, but. I, I, I personally feel that whenever you're reading the pastimes, you're supposed to try to figure out how it relates to us, how we can use what we've learned in our day-to-day -day pursuance 
of Krishna consciousness. I don't think they should be read strictly as just histories because of course they are, this is history. And, you know, most people aren't going to be tried to be murdered by their father because of religious disagreements. So, you know, there won't necessarily be that exact parallel. But I think that the parallels that we can draw are many. We are all spiritual beings in a mostly material world. So how do we navigate this material world and still try to remember Krishna at every step? How do we do that? And what hope is there for you when you think, well, this five-year-old boy was able to do this through being thrown off a cliff, being attacked by snakes, all of these things, somehow he was able to remember Krishna. And so then our things seem a little less intense then. You know what I mean? Nobody tried to throw me off a cliff. I wasn't attacked by snakes. I wasn't trying to be eaten by a demon. I wasn't trying to be poisoned. So you can see these things are everything we can be thrown at us. We can somehow try to remember Krishna and transcend it. And that's the lesson. The lesson is the practice of what Prahlad did. The lesson is, how do we practice remembering Krishna? Our conditioning, when things happening, are many. I'm going to freak out. I'm going to curse. I'm going to yell. I'm going to do all these things. As these things come upon us, what we should try to do is, even if we start, we're like, wait, all I have to do is remember Krishna. Because these things will come. And sometimes they're beyond our control. But if we remember Krishna, then we will never lose. Krishna says his devotee is never vanquished. And some people think, oh, that means that, you know, you won't necessarily <clears throat> lose a job or whatever. No, what it means when you say my devotee is never vanquished is that my devotee thinks of me and then he is always a winner. Whatever you do for Krishna is never lost, is never forgotten. Unlike what you do for these material things, you can dedicate your life to your job and then your job can lay you off. You know, you can dedicate your life to some person and they decide one day they're not really interested anymore and they can leave. But Krishna will never leave you. Krishna will never abandon you. Even when we abandon him. So what is the lesson? The lesson is how can we be more like Prahlad to remember the Lord when we're happy, when we're sad, when we're even? How can we always try to practice that remembrance? And by that, he's the epitome of the remembrance and devotional service and perfecting any one of those methods, nine uh, methods of devotional service, we can become perfect remembering is kind of like one of the easiest ones right just think you just have to think 
the mind is always thinking something. So all you have to do is steer it back this way. So, but it takes practice because now our mind is so conditioned to think so much nonsense. So what the story of Prahlad does, it gives us hope. If you can think about Krishna for your happinesses and your distresses, then this is the process. And we usually don't have to think so much past murder attempts. So we know it's doable. <laughs> it's doable. Uh, any other questions? There's questions in the comments. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, no worries. Yeah, we've got some questions in the chat. Um, My chat is up. Chaitanya Gautam says, uh, asks, why is it that our faith sometimes trembles? For me personally, when I preach and someone presents some information, my faith in Krishna trembles. I really want to devote myself to Krishna, but these obstacles come in the way. Is there any way to strengthen faith in Krishna? Yes. Um, <clears throat> the first step is to surrender and ask Krishna to strengthen your faith. The second step is you need, in order to have secure faith, you have to read. You have to know about the Lord's activities. Because just like in the story, if you look at what happened to Prahlad, he was being challenged about his philosophy by his father all the time. And the challenge went so far as when he was not convinced otherwise that now he's being, his father's trying to kill him. I mean, I dare say, I think that if you have a conflict or a challenge when you're preaching, nobody's going to kill you afterwards. <laughs> so the faith that is there is maybe you don't know every single answer. But as you read, the Lord will give you the ability to hear and know the things that you can say to help the people. But you have to know about his activities. When you hear his activities, it helps to strengthen your faith. This philosophy will strengthen your faith. When you know that Prahlad went through all these obstacles and just by remembering the Lord, he was saved. If you believe, then that faith is there. And if you don't have that faith and reading isn't enough, you have to go to the association of Vaishnavas who will help you understand that this, this Krishna consciousness is the answer. This Krishna consciousness is your eternal position. And it doesn't require you to know every single detail. But if you are submissive when you're reading, the Lord will reveal himself. And sometimes you understand that not everyone will be convinced because the Lord is so merciful that if you decide that you don't want to know him, he will make it so that you cannot be convinced. And so at some point, you understand this person is not interested, but what I can do is just say, you don't have to, 
but maybe just listen to these bhajans because they'll make you feel good. As a devotee, there's always a way that you can try to help the people you're preaching to. But if you feel like your faith is trembling, then you have to go and submissively read and hear and be in the, the association of devotees who have faith. And then your faith will be strengthened. Anything else? We got like four minutes. Chaitanya says, thanks a lot, Mataji. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Hi, Bo. I have a, just a quick comment. A beautiful, beautiful class and presentation and very, very nice answers to the questions. Um, particularly, and we don't have to understand what just happened in the scriptures. Um, there's a verse after Krishna um, defeats Banasur and goes back to Dwarka with some extra princesses. We won't get into the details of that. But um, Vishwanath Chakravarti himself says, you know, you can't understand this by logic. And it just leaves it as some of these pastimes, we just accept as Krishna does this. Like even with the pastime you gave of Nishingadev, there's no logic to how, except that it's God, could come in and, and actually accommodate all the boons that Lord Brahma gave to uh, Pallad's father and still be able to kill him. Right. So only God can come to some of these positions, some of these things that are described. And it was very, very nice how you presented that. But, but even the great Acharyas, they don't touch some of this stuff. They, <laughs> they just leave it as, <laughs> okay, this is God. I, I read somewhere, I think in Sri Ram Swami's books in the beginning, he says, one of the first steps to understanding is to accept that the Lord is inconceivable. And once you accept that he's inconceivable, then it's easier to accept because it's beyond my understanding. And once I accept that it's beyond my understanding, it's easy to accept all of it. Because the Lord is, we're just a small part and he's doing everything and he's doing everything not even as his full person. He has put plenary expansions of expansions of expansions of expansions and just percentages of him are doing things that are beyond our ability to conceive. And so then certainly him in his full Fullness is beyond whatever we can exceed. So when we accept that he's inconceivable, then we can start to understand it, accept it. <laughs> Wonderful. Faith. Yeah, this is actual honesty and humility. Yes. Okay, I don't understand that, but it <laughs> happened, and it's That's true. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. Thank you so Wonderful. much. Wonderful right, class. Krishna. Thank you so much. We've got... Uh, one more question uh, from uh, Kartik. Mm -hmm. um, in the first canto of Bhagavatam, there is an incident where Krishna does not give Narada his darshan in his first attempt in his previous life. And then in the purport, Srila Prabhupada says that Krishna may appear to us by his will, own will only and cannot be caught by our own efforts only. How do we understand this relative to the description in Brahad, Bhagavatamrita, uh, Bhagavatamrita, 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 thank you, 
about how Krishna is waiting for us and is so eager for us to join him. Well, he is very eager for us to join them, but he also reciprocates. So he also wants us to be eager to receive him. So, so many things, so many pastimes take place where it seems like Krishna is holding back. But in actuality, what Krishna is trying to do is heighten the mood to make you more desperate for his interactions. You know, when something comes very easy, sometimes it's taken very lightly. You take it for granted. It was very easy to accomplish, and so you don't think much of it. But when you work very hard for something, and you have to think about it and focus on it and do all that other stuff, at the end, when you finally receive it, you don't take that for granted. You treat it like the prize that it was worked for. So for Narda Muni in the beginning, he had to work harder. <laughs> he had to dive deep. He had to desire it more. And so don't ever think that the Lord is not interested. The Lord is always interested, but sometimes he's testing you to see how interested you are. Mm -hmm. 